as far as. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege and this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, the faith that you've given us, Father, by grace. Thank you for this local assembly, this beautiful church on a hill in North Dighton, Massachusetts. Thank you for making us a beacon of light in a world that seems to be accelerating away from your Son. Father, thank you for the privilege to serve in light of those details. Thank you for ridding, of a, ridding us of any preoccupation with the details of life that might preclude us from doing this wonderful thing, spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the one that came to be our substitute as the spotless and blameless one so that we might gain eternal life through Him and have a relationship with You, Father, for all of eternity. Father, we just ask for continued strength and blessing and Your providence in completing this great commission that Your Son has given us to go out and evangelize this world. What an opportunity. We do pray, especially for those that seek that opportunity, earnestly desire it, but maybe they can't be here for reasons of illness, physical, emotional, spiritual maybe, that they be encouraged by these lessons, by the faithfulness of this ministry in their lives. So we pray for them especially, and especially for the lost, that we might get to them. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make all of that a reality, a possibility, a privilege in our lives. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part six. I did promise this. I, I wanted to give you just an update. Uh, Madhava, Namala, Rajesh, those are the three individuals that are running that beloved ministry, Grace, uh, Mercy and Grace Ministries in India, where Joey and I are about to go. And I had asked them um, to send some pictures to encourage all of you especially as time starts to get closer and closer. That's uh, Madhava's wife, Namala, on the left there uh, with some children. Um, they do a lot of work with children. So uh, if you're inclined to support this uh, missionary activity through the church, know that the, probably the, the greatest emphasis in their ministry is for the children. And he's really sharp. He understands um, what needs to happen because there's only like 3% of the population in India is actually Christian. And so it's an uphill battle. Um, but a lot of the children have severe needs. Uh, food, medical, shelter, just things like toothpaste and toothbrushes. What he does and what they do as a family, uh, not just in their compound, but they go out and they supply some of these things to start this conversation, to sort of gain a, a, a seat at the table, even with children. 
And so they have um, these supplies that they hand out along with Bibles. As far as he's concerned, it's about getting the Word of God into the hands of these children. And sometimes the pathway to doing so is to show them up front that they care. And so that's the kind of ministry that they've, they've got going on over there. And so they go out to villages. Usually when I Skype them, I have video Skypes with them once every maybe probably average two weeks. And we talk for about 45 minutes live. Um, and he tells me, you know, I just got in because it's like a nine hour, nine and a half hour difference or something like that. I just got in from the villages, he usually says. And he's tired. Um, but they're going out and that, nothing's close over there. Uh, the villages are sort of spread out, so he's talking, you know, hours at a time. But he goes out to these villages with his wife and his son, um, and they go spread um, good goodwill, as well as Bibles and stuff like that. I think this is a picture of the kids inside the compound. So they have their own compound there, and they bring the kids in every so often, and they teach them the Word of God. And then, of course, here's some close-up of these little chickadees, huh? Huh. Look at them. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to let you know, I promise, I'll, I'll try to do more and more of that uh, as times get closer, but I want you to know the nature of the ministry. It's a um, very child-oriented ministry. So they do help out some women as well. Um, but it, he believes, as do I, that get to the children before they get taken away. Uh, or get lost, or get even more ingrained in something other than the truth that could set them free. And so this is the way that he goes about um, ministering to those individuals. So I just wanted to share that with you um, before we dig in. Okay, with that said, on Thursday, uh, the Spirit sent some real, or spent some real time with us on perspective, which is not surprising. I mean, I guess you could categorize all of our lessons over the past few years under this bucket called perspective. But this time it was regarding our own familiarity with the abundance of grace in our lives. The fact that we all get familiar with grace. And as your faithful shepherd, I will continue to do whatever I can uh, on that front to try to see you delivered through the plague I call familiarity. But here's what I know about that. Through scripture and experience, curing familiarity's plague, a, a shepherd cannot cure familiarity. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's not my job. I can, you know, hit you over the head with truth, with scripture, but I cannot cure it. It's not my job to cure familiarity. For it is his person who others have become dull of hearing with. And I'm talking about me. Um, you all eventually at some point become familiar with the man standing behind the pulpit. And that's not a problem for me. I don't like it. It hurts. But it hurts because it's hurting you. And this is what I taught on Thursday. The, the real issue is not that I have some popularity contest that I'm losing. Uh, this is about you being delivered. And if you become familiar, you become more and more in bondage. So it's just an interesting dynamic that I can't deliver you from the cure, from familiarity. I can't cure it, for it's me that you're in many ways becoming familiar with. The best I can do 
is sharpen another's perspective, give you something to think about, give you food for thought. Only God can cure this plague. And that's what I have to depend on. So the Spirit focused our attention specifically on the ministry for whatever reason, our ministry here at North Christian Church, um, the one that is led by this spiritual gift that is speaking to you right now, as Charles Spurgeon stated, one that demands a certain quality and quantity of humility. This was Spurgeon at the end of an article that I had read to you on Thursday. Jesus Christ deserves the best men to preach his gospel. That's true. And not the empty-headed and shiftless. Doesn't mean you have to be uh, exceptional. What he's saying is Jesus Christ doesn't choose uh, individuals that have essentially failed in every other walk of life, whether it's jobs or family or whatever. He doesn't choose those men. Why? Because those failures are indicative of arrogance. That's a person who doesn't do as unto the Lord. A person who's humble, God will ensure by grace they will succeed in whatever the calling is on their life. And that's why he doesn't choose those people, because they're not humble. They're arrogant. They've had all this string of failures, and they, you, don't, you don't end up going, well, I failed at everything else, so I guess I'll go into the ministry. The ministry is not, a, is not some safety net that people go to after they fail in every other way. And so this is what Spurgeon was getting at, that Jesus Christ deserves the best men to preach his gospel and not the empty-headed and the shiftless. So just, you know, obviously, if you didn't catch Thursday's message, do yourselves a favor and listen to it. It was a special one. It was sort of on the side, related to our studies, but uh, a big emphasis on this idea of familiarity, uh, starting with the pulpit even. Last week we were given a wonderful series taught by Scott Grande titled Perspective, It's a Privilege to Serve the Lord. And what the Spirit immediately pointed out to us, borrowing from Spurgeon's quote, is this. As Spurgeon quoted, empty-headed and shiftless men are actually arrogant men. That's the funniest thing. It's not, oh, shucks, I can't seem to succeed at anything. Well, there's a couple of things that could be wrong there. First, you might have your direction set wrong. You could be chasing after a carrot that God doesn't want you to chase, so you're not going to be successful. Or you could be lazy and arrogant and not do as unto the Lord, not work hard as unto the Lord. And that way, you'll fail. And that's what Spurgeon's saying, the empty-headed and the shiftless. So Spurgeon's, you know, empty-headed and shiftless men are actually arrogant men. They never do anything as unto the Lord, to borrow from Ephesians 6 and 7. As we learned through Scripture last week with King David, he was a doer, not merely a hearer who deluded himself. King David was a doer, a la James 1.22, described in the Lord's own words as a man after my heart who will do who will do all my will. That's Acts 13, 22. That was King David. David imparted his humble, loving heart to his son Solomon when he was saying this up here on the board in 1 Chronicles 28, 10. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. That was Solomon's lot. 
Maybe you build something else. Maybe you go somewhere else. Maybe you do something else. Your ministry, each one of us has an individual one, is different than the next person. You're not called, as far as I know, no one here is called to build a temple, right? I mean, Art and uh, the rest of the folks and Frank and some of the other folks, I mean, they built this beautiful temple, chapel. That was their calling. And they did it as under the Lord. But that may not be your calling, but you do have a calling. The point is that the Lord chose you. And then what does he tell his son? King David, the humble one, a man after God's own heart, said, be courageous and act. Do it. Stop finding ways and excuses why you wouldn't do it. Because that's what arrogant people do. Humble people wait around and say, what do you want from me? Arrogant people are the ones who always say, wait a minute, wait a minute, and they have a, a, a laundry list of reasons why they shouldn't. And they're just looking for excuses because that's what arrogant people do. Real men, and I hope you know what I mean, I'm speaking colloquially, real men do. Because true humility understands it's a privilege to do so. It really is. That's the blessing. It's a privilege to do something for the Lord. I'm not saying become all religious, walk out here and all of a sudden start getting on your hands and knees and snipping the grass with, your, with scissors so, everybody can, so the Lord can all of a sudden be impressed with how humble you are. That's not what the Scripture says at all. But true humility understands it's a privilege to serve. Interestingly, as much time as we Christians like to spend t- talking about our, quote, Bible heroes, so to speak, like David and Moses and Paul, all doers, the apostles, as we'll continue to see. The truth is that if David were standing here right now, he'd skirt any such accolades. He wouldn't be the guy going, yeah, that's right, bring it on. Keep it coming. The sweet aroma of accolades. He wouldn't be that guy. He'd be like, enough. This is about the Lord. You like anything in me? It's because of him. Who am I, he would say. David, like every true shepherd I've ever met, and there are a lot that aren't true shepherds, everyone that I've ever met did not thrust himself into service for the Lord in order for personal gain. In fact, he was so honest with himself that he often asked the Lord, Who am I? Seriously, he was taken back. Who am I? Why would you bestow this grace on me. Who am I? I'm just a no, I'm a shepherd. So on the one hand, we have this tremendously effective, humble leader whose estimation of self was appropriately level set. And on the other hand, he turns out to be one of the most magnificent leaders recorded throughout human history. It's a bit of a, what we might call a dichotomy when pondered through the lens of man. Man would be like, that seems weird. He's one thing, but he's also the other. Because most of the leaders I see, like on television or even in politics, are these puffed up, arrogant. And that's what we put together. And the reality is, no, scripturally, it's humility in true leadership. And so if you look through leaders, or you look at leaders through the lens of the flesh, this is a dichotomy. It's sort of two separate things. It's hard to reconcile. But when you look through the, the lens of Scripture, it's easy, it's obvious. Because God gives grace to who? The humble. And if He says, I, I need you to do this thing, He's going to equip you first. 
to do it. But he only equips the humble. So he's only going to call the humble. Who, if you look at their history, and then they get called to, you know, leadership positions, you look at their history, they have a string of successes. Why? Because all along they've been oriented to the will of God. And anytime the, the Lord said, do this thing or do that thing or whatever, they say, okay. And he blesses their socks off. What do you expect? Do you expect a bunch of failures? If, if God's grace is behind a calling on a man or woman's life, what do you expect to see in the history of their life? Success or failure? Success at every turn. And the time when they fail, it's really because they got arrogant and they lost sight of true norm. So who am I, says David? Go to Philippians 4.13. So we look at David, he's a perfect example, not the only one, who's incredibly humble, but yet incredibly effective as a leader. Not perfect. None of us are. And through the lens of man, it doesn't seem right. It seems like in today's society, especially in uh, America, you have to be this sort of amped up, type A alpha male, I'm going to, you know, pillage and, you know, run you over if you don't submit to my will. That's not, um, that's not what Scripture shows us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him, through him who strengthens me. This attitude that Paul wrote of is the same one that David embodied. And it's the same one that Jesus expounded upon as well. Go to John 15, 4. John 15, verse 4. So this is not a novel concept. It's not... Um, it's just novel in contemporary times. This, this form of leadership is, in my opinion, not even taught that often anymore. In order to succeed in this world, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's take mine. It's all about me. I'll, I'll, I'll cheat. I'll cut corners. I'll stiff somebody. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. And if, and if I'm hit with opposition, I'll just steamroll them. And if my enemies attack me, I'll just kill them. I'll annihilate them. Right? And Jesus said, if someone hits you on one cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other. If they steal the shirt off your back, what do you do? Give them your coat. Hmm. John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, I'm the vine. Do you see? We're attached to the vine. He's where we get our, our sustenance from. Our nutrients, our ability to go on. I mean, is, is anybody here not tired some days from being out there? And what do you do when you're tired? What do you do in the physical sense? You go home, you grab a bite to eat, right? You take a breather. But you need food. What if you didn't eat? You're going to go run a, a, you know, a, a super marathon, like 100 miles, whatever those things are called, with no food in your system? 
That's what most so-called Christians do. They never learn the Word of God. They don't read the Bible. They don't go to church. They don't submit to the Word of God. They don't do anything. And so they're malnourished. And they have no energy, and they wonder why. Humility gets them into the right mode. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Of course, the implication is that your humility will guide you. We've had lessons on this in the past. As you get more and more mature in the Word of God, even your prayer life changes. You stop asking for things that are you know, completely self-absorbed, out of line, selfish, and then you scratch your head and go, geez, I wonder why he didn't give me that. Because it had nothing to do with his will. That was you just being a self-serving, selfish, little adolescent jerk. And then pouting about it possibly after that you didn't get what you wanted for Christmas. <laughs> it's incredible. That's us. This beautiful attitude, though, the one that the Spirit's on right now, is the one that exists in every so-called great man or woman of God. I mentioned her on Thursday briefly, but every time I think about humility, my heart goes out to Mary, Jesus' mom. So let's read one of the most well-known scenes recorded in the Bible on the topic of humility. Go to Luke one twenty-six. Luke one twenty-six. If you're going to think about humility, you should think about Mary. I mean, the Lord uh, asked an awful lot, didn't he? The Lord, she was presented with you know, a bit of a whopper. And so is Joseph, but just think about Mary for now and think about the words we're about to read. Think about her relative, Elizabeth, who bore uh, John the Baptist. This is the scene. Luke one twenty six. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And that's David, by the way, the one we just talked about. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. That's the Greek word karito. It means graced out, blessed, favored by God. Quite a greeting from an angel on behalf of the Lord. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And that's that Greek word charis again. You have found favor with God. And behold, and God gives grace to who? Okay. You have found grace. Charis means grace. It's translated grace elsewhere in Scripture. But this is the same Greek word, charis. You have found favor or grace with God. So she must have been humble. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And for that reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. That's John the Baptist, by the way, Jesus' forerunner. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Remember, all things are possible through him who strengthens us. Everything with God, nothing's impossible. I just took verse 37, didn't I? (laughs) Verse 37, guess what it says? For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. She's talking about herself. May it be done to me according to your word. We should all have that tattooed somewhere on our bodies. Don't do it, but you know what I mean. In a figuratively speaking, behold, when you look in the mirror, can you say, behold, the bond slave of the Lord? May it be done to me according to your word. Can you do that? Honestly, do you look in the mirror and honestly have that attitude? That's between you and the Lord. But this is what true humility looks like. This is what Jesus' mother went through. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This is Elizabeth's version of who am I? You see it? How has it happened to me? That's Elizabeth's version of who am I? Sounds like David to me. Sounds like humility. For behold, when the sound of your greetings reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. This is Mary's version of who am I? Who am I, she's saying. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has exalted those who were what? Humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary's Magnificat, that's what we call that, stands out as one of the great illustrations of humility in the Bible. So, I hope you see the emphasis here, that humility and grace go hand in hand. God gives grace to the humble. Well, consider the privilege that Mary had with literally carrying the Son of Man um, to term. I mean, that's... And she said it, who am I? And even Elizabeth, who am I that I would be associated with any of this? 
Who am I? So humility and grace go hand in hand, which, as we've studied many times in the past, is actually stated as clearly stated doctrine. Up here on the board, James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's not Pastor Ed. That's the Word of God. The humble servant of God never assumes responsibility or even control over bringing glory to God. As Paul stated, we are what we are by the grace of God, which really means that we understand that we are inadequate to do anything without God's grace. Go to 2 Corinthians 3, 4. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Again, all the Spirit's really trying to do, and we're going to get back to the apostles. All of this applies to the apostles, obviously. We know that Jesus went away and prayed for quite some time the, the night before He chose His apostles. We know that He chose them perfectly. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And what He was looking for was not the puffed-up individual. He was looking for humility. So we have to understand that we're not adequate to do anything without God's grace, but He only gives grace to the humble. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from God. So our encouragement, as we head on back to our primary theme, excuse me, <clears throat> over the past couple of months, why are the apostles so encouraging, is that there's no real pressure on us to perform, I guess. We know what the Bible says about doing. Don't be just a hearer who deludes themselves. Be a doer. But if you look at what Scripture says, it says in order to do anything, at least to the glory of God, you have to be humble because to do it, you have to have grace. And so if you reel back, the only option you really have is to be humble. And even that, if we lack humility, he'll push us and teach us what true humility actually looks like. So it's not a perfect science either. But we can say that. There's no real pressure on us to perform, so to speak, other than the pressure to remain humble and get, of our, get out of our own way. As we'll continue to see, that was the apostles' greatest challenge, too. They, they were getting in the way a lot, especially in the beginning. They were getting in the way, like most of us do. Even after we're first saved, we tend to get in the way. Why? Because, for, let's face it, for most of us, we spent years self-absorbed. For years, we spent focusing on ourselves. How do I, how do I become? And I can only speak from a man, so women, please adopt this to your own um, gender, I guess, challenges. But how do I become that man? How do I become this aggressive, you know, steamrolling beast that I can just railroad over people and at the end of it all I can look back and go, I'm king of the hill. I mean, that's what we got taught when we were young, right? Everything was a, anything that looked like a hill, it now became the hill. And every, it was who could be the king. You know, someone would always walk away beat up or crying, depending on the age. 
right? <laughs> so that's what we were bred to do. But that's this world, isn't it? That's what we see in our politics. It's what we see in business. It's what we see in almost every walk of life. It's pervasive, this king of the hill type attitude. But you know what? If that's what you come to the table with, you have a lot to lose. Because like Paul said, he says, you know, I was all these wonderful things that this whole world esteems. And he goes, I consider it but rubbish. I was like the Pharisee. of I was the man by world standards, he said. And he said, it was, I, I figured out it was garbage. It was, it was literally garbage. Hmm. So what you see with the apostles, probably with yourselves, hopefully with yourselves, because we all go through it, is a lot of time is spent getting out of our own way. But again, as we're going to see, these apostles kept getting in the way of God's grace, working through them to His glory. And as we'll see also, it is typically apparent that it was their fleshly desire towards creature credit that led them astray. I mean, you know, Jesus is going to go die, and they're like, I wonder who the greatest is. It's like, come on, guys, seriously? It's like right on the precipice of the cross. And you guys are worried about, who's the greatest? So you know that they struggled, which to me is encouraging because they weren't perfect. They, they, they wouldn't want 50-foot statues of themselves today. If they were here, they'd say, oh, no, no, you're focusing on the wrong things. You're focusing on all the wrong things. This isn't about me. The best thing about me is what God did through me by grace. And that's what we're after. So here's our point of encouragement. Real men and women do. Why? Not because there's anything extraordinary about them. Consider why the apostles are so encouraging. Our whole series has been focused on this. But rather because they are humble. They aren't interested in self-glorification, only God's glory by grace. That's how they do stuff. If your own self-interests are put aside in humility then you become a truly dedicated servant of God's interests. Like the Bible says, you can't split. You're going to love the one and hate the other or vice versa. You can't serve mammon and wealth type thing. So your self-interests have to be put aside for you to serve God's interests. Up here on the board. Serving from the heart. The proper perspective on serving is that it's a, pr a pure privilege it's nothing less than a privilege, a grace gift, and an opportunity to honor the Lord from the heart. So I need you to concentrate here. I'm going to stop pulling things together. We're getting back to the apostles proper. As the Spirit's been pointing out, it's not a sufficient cause for glory to God if a person remains, as Spurgeon might dub them, empty-headed and shiftless. That doesn't bring glory to God. The aw shucks attitude, oh, I'm such a failure, and you know, I'm just no good at it, and, and, and the world's like, oh, you're such a humble guy. No, you're not. You're arrogant. You're exactly the opposite, because a humble person succeeds. And when I say succeeds, not by world standards, not that you're going to become rich and famous. It's that you're going to do whatever the Lord willed you to do. That's true success. It may be that you're a bazillionaire. It may be that you're broke, but that's a scale of values that is divorced from God's. And who owns this, the weights and scales? And who, weights, who owns the weights in the bag? God does. 
That's a divorced scale of values. But the world keeps impressing it on you. It says, take and adopt our scale of values. You want to be great? Oh, then you're going to be rich and famous. That would be America, right? What's our greatest export? I wrote a blog on it. Idolatry, right? You want to be, you want to be great? You want to be uh, adored? You want, to be, you want to make it? You want to be a success story and have books written after you? Then be an idol. Make a lot of money, be famous, get your name out there, have your own brand, be like the Kardashians, whatever they do, or the Hilton girl, whatever she does, which is basically nothing other than build a brand. It's a joke. Be like that. And you'll be successful. Go on, you, be a YouTuber. Have everybody following, have 20 billion people following you and praising your name and, and asking you for autographs in the street. Be that person. Because, you know, that's what the Bible wanted, right? Find me where it says, be a YouTuber. Oh, well, that was written so many years ago. That wasn't even YouTube. Oh, you're so brilliant. <laughs> Let's talk technology afterwards. We'll see who comes out on top. <laughs> Serving from the heart. Concentrate. The Spirit's been pointing this out. It's not sufficient, and it's not a sufficient cause for glory to God if a person remains empty-headed and shiftless. Jesus himself despised empty chatter and windbagging. Here's a little perspective on that. <clears throat> Recognizing privilege when you see it. You know, if you're sitting here, if you're listening to my voice, and you're taking breaths, God gave you those breaths. God has kept you alive. And who are you living for? You living for you? Are you a sloth? Do you do nothing as unto the Lord? Because last time I checked, the Lord was a worker, a doer, a laborer. And I know it's, it's, for some reason that doesn't resonate now. I even wrote a blog on that. Do you remember that? Who made up the idea of 40 hours a week? Where did that come from? I can tell you right now, but I'm not going to waste your time. It had something to do with factories, and it had something to do with 24-hour days. But we'll, don't worry about it. Read the blog. It's a nice website out there, I think. Who came up with that idea? This 40 hours, who came up with that? I'm serious. If you got to work, then work. If you get some time off, then take the time off. Right? That's what I'm saying. It's a privilege to labor for the Lord. So stop complaining. Stop living for yourself. Stop being so entitled. What are you so entitled about? Oh, I worked 30 hours this week. So? So what? What, is, what, is that? what are you entitled to? I'm saying, right, DJ? Like, what are we talking about here? The generate, I'm talking, mostly it's my age and below in many ways. And it seems to get worse and worse as the generations, like 40s, 30s, 20s, teens. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nobody wants to work. I tell my son, Sean, he's 16 now, I go, you're golden because nobody around you wants to work. I'm like, you can walk out in the workplace and they're like, this kid actually wants to work? <laughs> I'll tell you a story. I hope you don't embarrass him, but he worked on the farm the last two years. Farm work, 40, 50 hours a week, which is illegal. Shh. 
right? But he did, and I was like, do it. <laughs> the, the farmer that he worked for had given up hiring young men. He had given up, and he received a letter from Sean, a nice little letter in the mail, didn't know the guy from a hole in the wall, but the farm was down the street, said, I would like to work for you, you know, I'm a good kid, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know what? And I think it was his wife was involved. He said, give the kid a shot. And now they love him. And he keeps working for them. Right? And so it's like, what does that mean? Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to teach work ethic. Nobody wants to say, hey, you little rascal, get off your duff and go out there and do something. Seriously, do something for the house. Who entitles you to live here and eat our food and drink our water and watch our cable television and, and, and you want to piggyback on my cell phone and my medical coverage until you're 50 years old? You want to do all these things. I'm serious. You want to do all these ridiculous things. Why? Because I'm entitled. Says who? Why don't you turn around, turn the table around and say, I'm actually, I'm actually getting pretty strong. I'm actually pretty capable. I'm pretty able. Well, why don't you take those abilities and start serving those that have served you your whole life, starting with your parents? How about that? How about that kind of an attitude? Because that's what's, that's what's in here. You don't serve your family by becoming a YouTuber. That's serving yourself. And it's so crazy. I don't want to get political, but now I'm, gonna, I'm on somewhere else right now. All these people that are complaining, even in our own country, complaining about this or that or however, well, why aren't they doing anything then? Why are they not doing anything? Half the people that are complaining are on television, which usually means they're millionaires. Well, why don't you take your millions and put your money where your mouth is then? Shut up and do something. Oh, no. I want all of you to do something. Because I, after all, am the idol, right? And I don't want to lose my position in this society. This is what we live with. That's not recognizing the privilege of being alive. That's a self-absorbed, self-centered lifestyle. And that's exactly what this country exports, imports, anything. That's exactly what our country stands for, as sadly as it is. And I served idolatry. So you've got to lose it. You've got to lose it. Recognizing the privilege with the Lord's perspective you will see how much you've been blessed. While you get familiar, Christ never does. That's Hebrews 13. 8. If you've lost sight of your privilege to serve, you've lost sight of Christ. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. A little more perspective. How about remember where you came from? If you remember that you didn't have the privilege to serve the Lord until He chose to save you, Maybe, just maybe, you'll be more grateful for your current opportunity to do so. You didn't even, in other words, you didn't even have the privilege, you didn't even have the opportunity to serve before. Now you've been given this wonderful opportunity to serve. Maybe you should remember that. Maybe that would help. I don't know. Up here on the board. God's grace is not designed to accommodate man. It's designed to accommodate God, to bring glory to Him. But why are so many people entitled This grace, it's all for me. Why are people so entitled? 
It's unbelievable. It's this. It's this. This is what I see out there. And again, as the generations get younger, you know, this is what I see. Gather unto myself. Gather unto myself. Right? Gather unto myself. Someone uh, in this congregation, probably, I'm pretty sure they're darn close to 50 years old, wiped our deficit out. And this person is not a millionaire at all. As far as I know, they took their entire tax return and put it on the debt. Where's the rest of the young people? Why is it always a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old living on retirement or maybe retired? Why is it those people? Where's the young people? Where's the 40-somethings, the 30-somethings, the 20-somethings? Where are they? And it's not about the money, but where's their attitude? They're too busy spending their lives, their earnings, by the grace of God, with the intellect that God gave them, with the breath that they breathe that God gave them. They're too busy spending it on themselves. And they hear lessons like this, and they're like, that was so awesome, and I was so inspired. Hey, let's go get a $100 lunch. And I'm so grateful for, uh, for so-and-so clearing up that. So awesome. That's what the Lord's saying. It's a privilege to be able to serve. And it's not always about giving, but that's part of it. I mean, that seems to be the sticky point, right? Oh, I'll, I'll, t- I'll come sweep floors. How about 10 bucks? Nope. I'll just sweep the floor harder. How about 100 bucks? Nope. I'll shovel the driveway. Hey, the, the church is in $1,000 behind budget. Um, I'll paint the posts. But we don't need to paint the post painted. We need 1000 bucks. Nope. See, I'm not actually open to serving. Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm not really that, I'm not really that humble. I just want to be able to call out humility when it makes sense for my life. That's not a soldier. That's one of those conscientious, objective people that everybody likes to throw stones at. That's what that person is. I object. Um, I don't think that's in Scripture. I just don't think it's there. Who cares if you object? Who created you? Now the clay is going to say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? Who cares if you object? You're either a servant or you're not. A servant doesn't ask, hey, Mr. Master, why are you making me uh, hold the fields, huh? Maybe I don't want it today. No, seriously. Doesn't that sound asinine? How's that any different? You understand what the Spirit's getting at? This is about true attitude. This is about true surrender. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, 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 easier said than done, mister. Gaining all this perspective you keep talking about. And you know what? I completely agree in my flesh. But I vehemently disagree, based on the lens of Holy Scripture, that this blessed perspective cannot be gained as quickly as that. We have so much scripture to help us. For example, here's some wonderful encouragement. I'll give you the message, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, up here on the board. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, on YouTube, on Facebook. Oh, sorry, my bad, my bad. I was just getting with the times, you know what I'm saying? 
true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Verse 9, put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. A lot of people wonder, why is my life, why am I miserable? Why do I have to keep self-medicating with beer or alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it is that you self-medicate? Why do I keep having to do that? Because you don't have God's harmony. There's a narrow road and you're in the woods. Do you understand? Everybody wants all the gifts, and there's no quick cure. You don't come to class and say, oh, that felt so good. This morning, probably like not so much, but whatever. You know, oh, that felt so good. I'm so edified, you know. And you feel good like Chinese food. No offense, Chinese people, right? You feel good for about 20 minutes. You go into con, you're like, I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm really not. Let's go get some tacos. Let's go get that $100 lunch. Let's go, I don't know, whatever it is you do that's not, is inharmonious a word? We're going with it. Oh, you're a musician, yes. Inharmonious life. This is why you have that problem. It's because you're consistently serving yourself. Do you understand? This is what I'm trying to teach you. You become familiar. Don't look at me. I, could, I, I mean, I love you and I care, but because it's hurting you. I could care less. I have, you know how many friends I have outside of my family? I don't even want to tell you. But let me just say it this way. It's less than you. I'm serious. And if I didn't have the church, I'd have no friends outside the family. Half my family doesn't want to talk to me. Whatever, and I don't care. You know why? Because Jesus Christ said, I came to separate this person from this person in the family. It's not about your blood relatives. This is about truth. This is about your family in heaven. You want harmony? You're never going to find it until you're harmonious with that calling, that family, that faith. That's what he's trying to say to us. Stop serving yourself. Stop becoming familiar with your pastor, your church, all the grace in your life. Stop it because you're hurting yourself and you're wondering why you're having to self-medicate or do this thing or do that thing. Right? I'm so stressed out. I'm just going to... Some of you are like, that's not funny. Because I got a little weight problem. That's not funny. You can do the other ones, but don't do my weight problem. <laughs> I see you back there. It's ridiculous. I'm afraid to put my hand in it. I'll probably come back like this. It's like, that's not a Frank. That's not a beanie Frank. It's my finger. Sorry, I got caught up in the custard and the chicken wings or whatever the heck's going on back there. I never get any of it because you guys are ridiculous, like a, like a trough. I just stay away from it. I go through the couch area. I don't get, like, food on me. <laughs> uh, we laugh, but this is what the Spirit's trying to say. And it's good to laugh, because that's good for the soul. And it's good to laugh at yourself, because if you take yourself too serious, you're going to be downtrodden, and you'll be depressed, and you won't go anywhere. Because this isn't about condemnation. This is about realizing who and what we are without Christ. This is about no condemnation in Christ. 
This is about seeing it all as truth. Read Ephesians 5 when you go home. It's about seeing it all as truth because when we see everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we see with clarity. And it's at that point in humility that we're able to move forward that the grace of God can work in me. That's magnificent. That's all he's trying to deliver you from, my friends. So if you're looking at the man, he's still not there. The last thing we pondered on Thursday was a bit of a litmus test. And this is where we ended on Thursday. We're going to change gears here in a moment. The value of pressure. Pressure proves the metal of a person's heart. Everybody talks a big game, right? Everybody. Oh, I'm the man. I'm the next Michael Jordan. Give me the ball. At the buzzer, it's me. Air ball. Brick. I'm sorry. If you don't know basketball, they're just bad shots. The person didn't make it. Give me the ball. I'm the man. I can function under pressure. Well, let's see then. And God says, okay, here's the ball. What happened? You couldn't handle the pressure, obviously. As I've taught many times from this pulpit, faith must be tested for it to be consummated. So be careful what you think you have in terms of faith. Be very careful. Because all you have to do is say, okay, when the rubber hits the road, where are you? Seriously. When the rubber hits the road, are you the 50-year-old that steps up? Are you the adolescent 30, 20-year-old? Which, where are you on this? I know you like to talk a big game, but where are you on that? And some of you are old and act like that, so I'm not totally, there just seems to be a correlation there. Where are you on that span? Where's your sense of responsibility? Where's your sense of servanthood? These, this is the fruit that'll show you that you've been being changed that you truly are humble because God gives grace to the humble. But without those things, we know what the Bible says. You shall know them by their fruit. Without those things, you can likely say to yourself in the mirror, I'm a front. I'm a phony. I like this stuff. I'm growing, but lest I say that I'm not uh, unaccomplished, I am what I am by the grace of God, nothing more. That I don't have an estimation of myself that's higher than it should be. These are all scriptures reworded, by the way. That I don't have an estimation that's too high. That I actually don't esteem others as more important than myself. Should I keep going? That I don't submit to the authority in my life. Oh, who would that be? Say it. Thank you. Oh, one person. One lady. I'm not the only one, but you know what I'm saying, right? Why not? That's what he's saying. Because you're arrogant. And you won't have harmony. Arrogance doesn't have harmony. Hmm. So pressure proves the metal of a person's heart. Under pressure, true faith emits humility. Pseudo-faith emits arrogance. God reminds us of our arrogance by pressing us into this latter point and then saying, see, you're still arrogant. I put you under a little pressure. I put you under a little pressure and your faith crumbled like dust. Just a little pressure, like this little thing. Look at how much I've done for you. I asked for this. 
I asked for your first fruit. I don't even want I just some fruit. I want something. Do this little thing for me. Poof. Didn't even happen. And you had a thousand excuses as to why it didn't. And you convinced your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever, whoever you got in your life, your parents, your kid, you convinced everybody that those excuses were viable. But they're not. Because God doesn't make any mistakes. If God actually asks you to do something, He's already given you the grace to do it. Unless He's a liar. Do we have to cover all the Scripture again? I don't think so. If He asks you to do something, and you know it's from Him, then you know that you have the ability to do it because only His grace brings glory to Him. Hmm. Just food for thought for all of us. Since we've got a little extra time, I'm going to change gears, not drastically, but we've got to, at some point we've got to get back to our primary course of study, which was, by grace they have been prepared. So with that said, we have to gather ourselves a bit to where we left off with our primary series a couple of weeks ago. We had just gone through the critical thinking exercise that I dubbed the conversion coin, right? We just looked at all this really did was get us thinking about individuals. A zero means it's not there, a one means it's there. We know that to be converted, you have to repent and have faith in Christ. That's the two sides of the same coin we call the conversion coin. You have to turn away from sin, turn towards Christ, have faith in Christ. That's what we would call the conversion coin. Some people have neither repentance nor faith. That's a hardened heart person. Some people have no repentance, but some kind of weird pseudo-faith, like the rich young ruler. I just want more. I don't want to give up the self-life, but just keep giving me more. That's not real faith. Some people repent, but then turn to the wrong God or another Jesus, right? They're like, man, I'm such a sinner. I'm a wreck. I need a, I need a savior. I think I'll go to the, the little bald guy with the belly that sits Indian style and I rub him. I think I'll do that. Or I'll make a, I'll coddle together. Uh, I think they call it syncretism, right? I'll coddle together a bunch of religions and sort of make my own patchwork quilt. And that'll be, and I'll wear that. That's my religion. That's my salvation. No, because that would make Jesus Christ a liar. No one gets to the Father but through me. And then you have, of course, a one-one situation where someone repents truly, has true faith in Christ, they're saved. So that just got us thinking critically to all the different ways where people might not be saved. So let's get started with the following then in order to gather our thoughts to where we were a couple of weeks ago. Up here on the board, just relax. This should all be part of review. I'm just trying to get you back for this upcoming week's labor. Jesus' call. Why didn't Jesus choose the Pharisees? Why the apostles? The answer is simple. The Pharisees thought they could save themselves. Works program. Religion. We get lots of religion, even in this area. Whereas the apostles looked to Jesus to save them. That was the fundamental difference. And Jesus called them instead. He needed humility, not arrogance. Matthew 16, 15 to 16, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Pharisees said that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub. Yet they were the religious ones. One of the key elements to our labor here has been tied back to our previous series on the gospel salvation and sanctification. The distinction being made between the apostles and their contemporaries, the religious Jewish leaders, 
who assumed wrongly that birthright and religion had influence on one's salvation. Go to Matthew 3.8. I think a lot of people in this area, a lot of people in this area, um, believe this thing, that if they're a member of some church, or their parents, or their grandparents, or just, you know, their family structure is somehow tied to some organized religion, and they're good people, that somehow they're saved. The whole thing is a ridiculous lie. But you know what? It's actually not novel. Because that's what the religious people during Jesus' time thought. They thought because they had a certain blood lineage that they were set, that was their salvation. And he shot that down quickly. Matthew 3.8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not uh, suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Up here on the board. So that key phrase, do not suppose, is applicable to all of us. Do not suppose. This reeks of the contemporary plague in the churches where people are convinced that they are saved just because they are, quote, whatever this means, by the way, official members of a church or a group or a lineage, you know, family, whatever. That's garbage doctrine. That is evil. It's satanic. And it's ungodly. Um, You're not saved because you're a member of some church. That's ridiculousness. As the Spirit's been reminding us as of lately, like I just said, like there's a lot of people that if people from that church were here right now, they'd be like, hiss, hiss, you know, spitting venom at me for saying what I just said. But Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. Never. He knew that he was doing them a favor. He knew that sending them away unhappy, unfulfilled, uh, was a good thing, was actually grace. Because if you lie to someone, you've just set them out on a course. They think they're going in the right direction. How great is their darkness when when they're not, or how great is their darkness when they think they're in the light? You helped with that. If you tell somebody, oh, you're good, and you don't explain to them, well, you're too lazy, here it goes again, See, it's not always about money. You're too lazy to cause a little friction or contention in your life. But I don't like, I don't like to f- square off. I don't, contention makes me freak out. So, do you don't think the cross was uh, tough? You, seriously? Content, I don't like contentious. I just don't like it. So? So? What's the point? What's your point? Honestly, like seriously, what's your point? That's that's your excuse? Oh, that's oh, I forgot. You got that little laundry list of excuses that everybody else seems cool with, but Jesus isn't. Are you somehow precluded, exempt from the great commission because you don't like contention? That's your excuse? I wonder how God feels about that. Seriously. But 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 I I wouldn't I my own family probably wouldn't invite me back to Thanksgiving. So what did Jesus say? I came to divide. Who do you love more? Yourself? Because that's about you. That's not even about your family. That's about you. Who do you love more? Yourself or Jesus? Who do you love more? The, the truth about God or your little whatever's going on with you and those people you're thinking about right now? Because that's really about you. Being unwilling to sacrifice. Losing your sight of Christ, of why you're here. You're not here to have jolly Thanksgiving dinners. 
If you do, great, that's cool. But that's not your purpose here. Your purpose is to spread the gospel. What do you care more about, Thanksgiving dinner or the people around that table going to hell? I'm serious. What do you care more about? Well, the turkey's really good at my aunt's. But if, I, but if I offend them, I'll never get invited back, and I only have like three friends. That's three more than Pastor Ed. <laughs> You're doing pretty good. <laughs> what did Paul say at the end of it? He goes, everybody left me. Read them. Well, everybody left me. Yeah, no kidding. So Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation, nor should we, frankly. But not in the sense of saying, oh, you're, you know, you're so not saved. Because that's not our call. It's not our call. But rather presenting the so-called challenging passages up for humble consideration. Most of you could probably evangelize people, at least get them started on their conversion, by just giving them scripture. Just saying, well, you know that thing you just said to me? I'm just saying. <laughs> the Bible says just the opposite. It does? Yeah, it does. But I do like the Bible. I like the Proverbs, and I like the Ecclesiastes. Is it Ecclesiastes? Yeah, it's Ecclesiastes. I like Ecclesiastes. I like the Psalms. I like all that wisdom stuff. But that other stuff about only Jesus, I'm not good with that. Well, then, my friend, before we break bread together here on Thanksgiving, let me tell you what the Bible has. Let me tell you one scripture. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So that little tiki doll you have on your dash of your new car, the one you rub and think, I don't know, you get seven wishes out of I don't know how that works, but it doesn't work. Now, if a person remains arrogant in the presence of said holy scripture, then so be it. One of the things I like that most of you remember Fassel, Fassel like a castle, and Carrie John, they have that Grace, Merc uh, Grace Ministries in Pakistan we had them up here, and they sat, and we talked to them in this kind of a thing one night. One of the things I loved, probably the biggest takeaway for me of that panel discussion was this. Because they're constantly over there. And that's where people get killed for proclaiming Christ, by the way. Surefire evangelism always includes the Bible says or the Word of God says. This places the burden of conviction on the Word in the spirit in that moment, not the evangelist. It also believes or relieves the evangelist of bearing the responsibility of saving others. God saves. It's a wonderful tactic. You're like, how do I do it? Say it like this, honestly. Get started this way. Say, you know the Bible says. You know the Word of God says. I know what you just said. I heard you. But you know what the Bible says? It says this. That's all you have to say. The Bible says, the Word of God says. Don't say, well, I believe, even though you do. Put the, put the burden on the Bible. The Bible says. And they, what are they going to say? Well, I don't believe the Bible. But then, then the conversation is pretty much over at that juncture. But if they cling to the Bible and they want, and they know the Bible to be true, then say, the Bible says, did you know? You know, I didn't know that. There's a lot of things. Like, you know, when you grow up in this country, it's kind of like, well, I know it's kind of wrong to have sex outside of marriage. I, I know it's wrong because it's like kind of like morally wrong. And then you show someone the abundance of Scripture on that kind of stuff. 
and they're completely convicted. And it's no longer about you judging them. It's about them under the word of God, isn't it? The Bible says, the Bible says, and then you walk away. That's beautiful. Because then they can't hate you for it. Not that it matters, right? Because they find a way anyways, because now you're the one who gave it to them. Now I'm all convicted. I'm all convicted. Shame on you. You made my life miserable. I didn't make your life miserable. Oh, people are funny like that, though, aren't they? So always includes the Bible says or the Word of God says this places the burden of conviction on the Word and the Spirit in that moment, not the evangelist. It also reveals the evangelist, relieves them of that burden. You're not Superman. You don't, we don't put on capes to go evangelize. That's not our job. We're not flying around saving people. Our job is to give truth. And the best way to give it? Did you know the Bible says this? Now, if they know what it says and they're still doing it, well, then they're arrogant. And they'll be judged for that by God. Somehow, some way. The, their judgment might be real time and that they're not going to find harmony. Or if they're sleeping around, maybe they get a disease. I don't know. Who knows? These are all the good sides. Everybody's like, seriously? We're talking about venereal diseases now? Seriously? I didn't create them. God did. I'm just saying. If you're not out there doing that kind of stuff, guess what? You won't get it. You won't need the shot. I'm just saying. Got to loosen them up. Look. Do you think he's really got a guy like me up here trying to condemn you? You think this is all about? No, he's trying to deliver you. He's just trying to deliver you. He's saying you're, the, you're your worst stinking nightmare. You're your worst nightmare. You get up in the morning and say, it's time to serve myself. I'm spitting on myself. I'm all excited. Right? Hey, Lydia, I'm going to have a stain. She's going to be like, why did I get the guy? Why did I get him when he's got stains on his shit? I'm like, so tell me about yourself. She's like... Can't concentrate. Right? I mean, you really think that that's what he raises up men like me for? Hand chooses them, anoints them? You really think that's why he chooses men like me? To teach these kind of lessons? So that I can stand before you and, and make you feel small? No way. No way. You just were born with this problem that you live for yourself. And even after salvation, you're really good at it. You still live for yourself. You, don't, you say you love Christ, but you kind of don't. You have his love, but you push it aside. Does that sound familiar? And look, nobody's looking at me. I swear to God. For once in this whole lesson, I looked at people in the eye, and every time I came upon them, they were like this. <laughs> Isn't that the funniest thing? Because they think it's about me still. It's not me. I'm just looking for some feedback. You know, teacher, feedback, are they getting it? You know? <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't raise up guys like me to, to condemn you. That's not even my job. Last time I checked, there's no condemnation in Christ. Read Romans 8.1. Read all of Romans 8. Hey, read all of Romans. Why don't you just read this and get it over with? Right? Let's do it. Let's do it. So 
Just know that. It's not about condemnation. It's just about you being set free. If you want that harmony in your life that Paul wrote about in Romans, if you want that thing, you know where it's at. You know the wellspring. I've been teaching it for years now. He's just trying to deliver you from your own self. And then once you're delivered, you ready? Once you're delivered, you will be that person that will stand in the mirror and say, who am I? Right? Who am I? Are you serious? You you pluck you pluck this out of the you pluck this out of the fire? Yeah. I love you. So says Jesus. And I chose you because you're humble. The same person who's humble says, Who am I? Amen. The arrogant person says, Look at me. Who am I? Amen. Okay, I was gonna show this video, guys.
because of what you've done Not because of what I've done But because of who you are I am a flower quickly fading Here today and gone tomorrow A wave tossed in the ocean A vapor in the wind Still you hear me when I'm calling Lord, you catch me when I'm Let's just close in prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, who are we? We are yours. May we never forget this. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.